Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. I am your host, Zainab Bintinas, and today's guest is Sheikh Abdurrahim Green. Sheikh Abdurrahim Green is someone who's been around the block longer than many others today in the Dawah field. He accepted Islam in 1988 and since then has been actively involved in Islamic education and community work. He's particularly known for founding the Islamic Education Research Academy, IRA, based in the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Sheikh Abdurrahim. Jazakallah khair. Thank you very much for that nice introduction. Yeah, I'm getting so old. I'm probably hobbling around the block soon with a walking. <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite. You know what? Tell us a little bit more about your background. You're British. I'm Canadian. And while I came to know of you back when I was a teenager, I was hanging around Br- British Muslims online. A lot of North American Muslims really aren't familiar with your story. So just, you know, give us your little background spiel. Okay, so I was... Um... I guess I was, I was brought up in a sort of middle class, upper middle class family. My dad was, well, my father's side comes from quite a long line of um, British colonial administrators. Uh, my grandfather was a high court judge in Bombay. He was a governor in Malaysia in Penang. Briefly, um, my dad was born in Singapore. And he himself worked in the colonial service. That's where he met my mum. Uh, my mum, however, is Polish and a refugee uh, from the Second World War. And um, yeah, I, I was actually myself born in Tanzania. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so, but then Tanzania, Tanganyika, as it, as it was called then, uh, got its independence. Uh, my dad stayed briefly for a couple of years at the request of the Kenyan government. And he, he was working there, but then that's it. He, we, we moved back to UK. And my dad basically joined Barclays Bank International, and I sort of went to school. I was my mo- my mum, although my dad wasn't wasn't Catholic, my mum was still very Catholic. So she wanted me to go to this very well known, famous boarding school uh, called Ampleforth College. It's a private school, although we call private schools public schools, and we call public schools comprehensive schools. It's a bit confusing. You know, you know, that goes back to the Middle Ages, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I, I went to um, this boarding school, which was run by monks, basically. It was a monastery. There was also a boarding school. And that's basically where I spent, you know, from the ages of 10 till I was 19, all the way through primary school, college. That's where I was most of the time, apart from holidays, which pretty soon after I went to boarding school, my dad was posted to Egypt to set up Cairo Barclays, which is a, which was a joint, joint venture between Banque du Caire and Barclays Bank International. And he basically stayed there. He loved it. And um, we stayed there for 10 years. And um, so that was a big experience for me. Uh, very, very transformative. Was that kind of exposure to Islam? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, apart from the usual stuff, the Crusades in history lessons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, <laughs> Yeah, my my it was my first exposure to Islam and Muslims, and and it was it was it was, you know, I I would wish it for everybody. I mean, I, I I everybody should spend a good amount of time absorbed in a different country, a different culture. Uh, it's very very you know it broadens your mind hugely. Um, yeah, and it had a very big. It had a sorry. How old were you at the time? Ten. When well, well, I was ten years old when when oh, we. Wow. Okay. Yeah, ten. So I, I literally, you know, it was like my home, really. For me, Egypt was home because school wasn't home. School was school. I hated I didn't like school. I didn't enjoy it. And, and I guess that was, for me, that was, I guess, part of the existential angst. My ontological anxiety was definitely, definitely spurred on by the fact that I was in the school. I didn't really enjoy it. I did, couldn't understand why I was there. And it led to bigger questions like, what's the purpose of life? What's it all for? 
because all I could really figure was that I was supposed to be at school to work really hard to get good results in my exams so I could go to a good university so I could get a good job so I could earn enough money to send my kids back to that school so that they could get good results so that they could get a you know, I thought, this is that the purpose of life? Is that really what we're on earth for? Just to. The British circle of life, eh? Well, yeah, but any, you know, like, yeah, for, yeah, British, British upper middle class circle of life, yeah. You know, so it was just like, I, I thought that can't be it. There's got to be more to life. There were lots of things about Catholicism I didn't like. I, from a young age, I was questioning the Trinity. I remember my mum thought, you know, before I went to school, I remember I must have been, obviously I was younger than 10 because this was uh, before I was going to school. My mother was teaching me this prayer that Catholics say called Hail Mary. And it literally begins, Hail Mary, Mother of God. And when she said Mother of God, like I was sitting there in bed, I still remember it really well. I was lying in bed thinking, how does God have a mother? Like God's supposed to be the creator of everything. Like I had in my head a concept of what I pretty much knew God should be. And God having a mother just didn't fit it. It was so confusing. That's when and it gets strong. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I thought, and I was sort of figuring out in my little head. And then it was like, well, if God had a mum, she must be a bigger God than God because she gave birth to him. You know, it was like, you know, like there's only, I guess there's certainly only so much you can compute in your little, and you trust your mum, you know, when your mum tells you something or whatever. You're at that age where everything is accepted unthinkingly or almost unthinkingly. And yeah, so, but these, these questions continued some general questions about Christianity, you know, like the Trinity and various other things. Some, some things very specific to the Catholic Church, like confessing your sins to a priest, which didn't make sense since the priest was often the same guy who was actually in charge of you, you know, who's your headmaster, right? So it was like, how are you going to interest? Conflict of interest. Yeah, conflict of interest. I mean, you know, the Gestapo or the Stasi couldn't have come up with a better system of control. There's lots of things, you know, so many interesting things going through my head. I mean, I, I mean, in those days we studied Latin and Greek. That was still on the curriculum in those days. I actually won the Latin prize at my school. So, like, we, we studied ancient civilization, you know, um, and so I was pretty familiar with the whole pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. And I thought, oh, great. Well, what's the difference between Catholicism and that old religion? Like, you know, they had Apollo, Zeus, Aphrodite, you know, and, and uh, Mer Mercury and Venus, whatever, right? And, and we've got Mary and the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, and we've got St. Peter and St. Anthony and St. Christopher. So they had all these gods that they prayed to, and we prayed to the saints. And I just thought, oh, it's like pretty much the same thing, which really, actually, it pretty much is the same thing, you know, but like that actually, really, that's what Catholicism is. It's, it's a sort of some trappings of Judaic monotheism uh, mixed in with pagan Roman beliefs. That's really what Christianity actually is. But I didn't really think of it like that. I thought of it in a very sort of positive ecumenical sense rather than a negative, you know, uh, negative way. Yeah, but I mean, all these questions continued. I was, you know, like, like I said, I had this, but I, the big question was, what is the purpose of life? Like, what's it all for? It wasn't really theological things. I just didn't feel Christianity was very satisfying. And I went through a sort of journey. Where I, I basically went through a lot of religions. I went through Buddhism, which was collected, connected to a sort of interest I had in martial arts, which is a whole nother thing. And then I got interested in Buddhism. I actually genuinely sort of practiced forms of Buddhism for quite a while. Interesting. Yeah, I, I took it on board quite strongly. I used to do some sort of yoga. This is back before like yoga, like yoga so big. Before it became popular with the... Yeah, it, well, it still was sort of hippie, you know, 1960s, you know, like people going to India and doing yoga. But now, I mean, it's huge now, isn't it? Right. It's yeah, like, so mainstream. but I would, yeah, I was, yeah, I did some, you know, I was, I, I could put my leg, you know, around the back of my head type stuff. <laughs> I was like, yeah. yeah, I can't do that anymore. That's for sure. <laughs> but you know, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I, I sort of did, did a lot of yoga and uh, fasting and um, Buddhist fasting, slightly different to Islamic fasting, but, you know, just sort of various things, you know, in the eightfold enlightened path and, and Again, I, but you know, I still, I basically, my problem with Buddhism was that 
I think first, I, I, the, the bottom line is I think Buddha's premise was wrong. But Buddha had sort of come up with a, this, you know, idea that life is suffering and, and suffering in life is caused by the ego. So the solution is therefore to annihilate the ego. But life isn't suffering. That's just not true. That just because there is suffering in life, it doesn't mean life is suffering. So like his premise was wrong, you know, for me, you know, I, I just didn't. And then, and my, my main problem, I, look, the, at the end of the day, I went through various religions, Buddhism, you know, I read Bhagavad Gita, I went through various Hindu religions, a lot of new age stuff, psychosomatic yoga, magic, studying magic, books on philosophy, like whatever, whatever, the, anything that I thought could give me the answer to the meaning of life, I was, I was into reading it. And it may be a bit sort of weird, but interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, How long did it take you, know, you to, to hit on Islam then? Well, the funny thing is, is that I never thought about Islam, and I, the strange. I mean, look, my story is very available. Like the whole story, how I became Muslim, it's very easy for anyone to just search it up, and they can listen to my story, how I became. You know, like I told it so many times, (laughs) but I mean, basically, I'd sort of reached the stage where I, I basically gave up on everything. I just thought it's all a load of like, you know. Maybe the, the most important thing in life is having money. That's all it is. There's nothing more. You, you know, I just thought maybe I just need more money. Maybe that's my problem. I just need more of it. And basically, I was thinking about who has the most money in the world and made the least effort to get it. And I was thinking about all the sort of civilizations throughout history. And I just thought, oh, my God, those Saudi Arabians have been sitting on that. <laughs> And they'd done nothing, literally, and they got all that money. So, and literally, that was it. That's what motivated me to pick up the Quran. Nothing to do with religion. It was purely a materialistic motivation. I just wanted. Funny how Allah pulls us from different ways in different directions, eh? Isn't it weird? Isn't it? And obviously, I'm not comparing myself to Musa Astaghfirullah, right, in any way. But it, in a sense, there is that thing when Musa is looking for a fire. Right, you know, and he's looking yeah, for a fire yeah. to to keep his family warm and light his way. He's not looking for any. You know, he's certainly not looking to be a prophet or <laughs> looking, you know, for the for Allah to speak to him. But yeah, is, yeah, that's what he finds when he comes mm-hmm. to the burning bush. I, it was a little bit like that. I, I didn't approach the Quran looking for any spiritual guidance. But the thing was, is that what it did allow me to do is read the Quran with a very open mind. I wasn't looking for anything. I was just looking to understand, like, what is this about? What, what is this? Is there something here? So you were kind so of I primed didn't... then to just really look at something, not going, not going in with any particular expectations necessarily. And I think that was good. That, that gave me that space, you see, to really just try and understand it. But that, that was it. That was my epiphany. That was my, definitely my road to Damascus moment. When I started reading the Quran, I knew... Pretty quickly, I was dealing with something that was very different. Um, it was not an easy book to read. It's not very. It's not a big book by any standards. It's not big, but it's. It was really, and I was a good reader. I mean, I could read. I could whiz through books literally. I remember. I think I read the whole of Roots. You know, Alex Haley's Roots in one night. You know, so like most ninety percent of it in a wow. night. Or something yeah, like, that. like I could read really fast, and I could see. I can understand. I could read a. That's because I just did a lot, a lot of time. So it's not just like reading through the words, but actually comprehending. No, no, no. I mean, you know what? When you do something a lot, I mean, just as a family, we read a lot and Mm -hmm. I read a lot. So like reading was just like, it wasn't hard for me. It was just like a, you know. So so, so when I read the Quran, it was, the, the problem was it was just not like any other book. And, you know, I wanted to understand it. So I kept finding myself reading bits stopping and then thinking wait a minute what was that about and then i'd have to go back and read it again and then you know read a bit more and then it was like wait a minute what was that saying back there because i mean apart from anything it doesn't follow it doesn't follow a storyline you know it's It's not not a linear book the way we're taught to expect how a book works so it it, it is a i mean it's not that i hadn't read contemplative stuff before i'd read books you know on zen buddhism i mean they're just zen books of Zen Buddhism are just basically these sayings that you contemplate. Contemplating on them is supposed to lead you to greater, you know, realizations of understanding. And, and you know, so it was not that I, it's not that I hadn't read stuff before that, that was different and that wasn't linear. 
uh, it's just the Quran. I don't know. It's like it's from Allah, right? So it's it's this master, the one who understands our minds absolutely better than we do. But I, for me, it was like I just realized. I, I actually, I sort of really remember the moment very clearly, very vividly that I was actually on a train. Um, I was on my way to work. The train was actually at the time going over the River Thames. I, you know, I remember it really distinctly, almost like I'm narrating it. I can remember like the sort of smell and the sound and the sort of thing. And, and I just looked out of the window, looked back at this translation of the Quran I was reading, and, and said to myself, "If I have ever read a book that is from God, this is it." Yeah, and that was, I guess, that was the moment. Uh, that I had sort of, I suppose, really, in a sense, accepted it. It took me a lot longer to to change my life because that's okay. what really being a Muslim is about. That was a whole, that's a, like a whole nother story and a whole yeah. nother struggle, you know, because I, I had a very sort of privileged life and right. it definitely yeah. wasn't. Yeah, I can really imagine how dramatic know. a shift that must have been. Big, big, big change. Well, I mean, the first part of your your life story sounds uh, almost a bit like a, a Muslim Rudyard Kipling novel. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's that's a really interesting background. You know, most people yeah. wouldn't really think about that kind of thing anymore, and it it just reminds me of my childhood reading those kinds of British classics. <laughs> bit of a twist. Um, yeah. So let's fast forward a bit, okay? So Abdullah, you accepted Islam and you made the dramatic life shift and all that, yeah. and now you've spent a so much of your life, mashallah, doing community work and specifically dawah focused towards non-Muslims. Now, I mean, some people might say, well, okay, well, that's obvious because you're a convert, but there are plenty of converts who don't go that particular route. So why did you choose to focus on this specifically? Why is this like your particular passion? It is, okay, so it is my passion. And I would definitely say I have more of a focus on that than you know many many other people but in reality if i look back in retrospect over the 30 whatever it is years i've been a muslim actually the vast majority of it has been lecturing and talking to muslims yeah okay say those yeah. your approach towards these the muslim dis- intermuslim discussions usually is i mean i was just i you know look back in the days before there was social media right there were not that many English speaking, and this is before Zakir Naik, right? So before Peace TV, before Zakir Naik, there were not that many English speaking lecturers on the circuit. And in fact, probably I was the only English person apart from Yusuf Islam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I know of. Maybe there were a few others, but they were not well known, right? right. So I, I did a lot of lecturing all over the world, right? So, you know, so almost a running joke, like how many countries have you been to? It's like almost easier for me to count the countries yeah, that, you know, that, that I haven't been to, you know, yeah, I, I don't know, but I, you know, I've been all over the world. And so most of my lectures really, if I look at my roll call of lectures, that's very, very diverse, very, very diverse lectures. And most of, most of my lectures were to Muslims, but obviously a lot of them then the, the Muslims were beginning to really, not beginning, because I think it happened in the 60s and 70s, right? I was, you know, when I, just when I was born and growing up. But, you know, they were really, really struggling with what they, what they might call modernity, right? Yeah. But, you know, Westernization, right? And Western ideas and Western concepts. So a lot of my talks had that sort of influence that they were trying to deal with these contemporary issues that Muslims were facing. And I was sort of trying, I guess I was sort of trying to speak the language that the youth in those days could relate to. Yeah. And that's what it was. It was just like, Pretty that's mostly what my lectures were about. So like my most famous lecture, probably, like that I was so well known for, was called Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, or Is There More to Life? Which until I today- I remember this. I must have been yeah. really young when I heard it. But yeah, yeah I remember that title. Yeah. I remember that title. And, and it was- I really think, alhamdulillah, it was, it was, people would say this lecture changed their life, right? And it was very non-offensive in the sense that like, anyone could listen to it, Muslim. And it, and, it, and it was just as much a dawah lecture to non-Muslims as it was to Muslim, right? And basically, it was that question, what's the purpose of life? And it was contrasting the Western materialistic consumer society model. And I was just trying to say, well, 
basically I was showing in a very sort of humorous way, but just showing this is not the purpose of life. And the evidence is there, is that people are not happy. You know, so I, but I used these cultural, iconic cultural things that were very iconic at the time, various advertisements that were like, and I'd yeah. use these to illustrate what is the message that you are getting, but is it really, does it really make you happy? And then I would go to, well, what is the purpose of life, right? And that the whole, at the end of it, obviously, is that's conclusion is to connect with Allah, to know your creator. This is where you're going to find happiness. So, but, but a lot of my, I guess, my lectures were connected with that sort of type of theme uh, in different ways. So there's either the Coca-Cola Muslim generation, that was a sort of follow-up to that, Coca-Cola <laughs> Muslims. And, you know, so these were like things that, and then there was other stuff like pray before you're preyed upon and, you know, like. Yes. yes. So the ones that become iconic, almost like we don't even yeah, know yeah. Those anymore because they become such a such an integral part of our Muslim pop culture reference. Yeah, no, it's true. There were not many people giving lectures like that, you know. Yeah. And in those days, there really wasn't. I don't say out of boast; it's just that's just the reality, right? Yeah, there for sure. That. I mean, like things have changed so much. I would genuinely say you were absolutely one of those pioneers of of English dawah, basically. But you know, like having said that, my my passion, you're right, was always with Dawah to non-Muslims, right? It actually always was. And I always got disappointed when there were not a lot of non-Muslims at my lectures. And I always was trying to get people to get non-Muslims to come to my lectures. And to be honest, wherever I went, you know, I said, guys, why are you not giving Dawah? Why are you not inviting people to Islam? So like the the re, the thing I became, I guess the, the way I became known in a way, or the thing that started me was going to Speaker's Corner, right? So this is this place of you yes, guys. Yes, tell us yeah. about that because like Speaker's Corner mm. is legendary to everyone yeah. who's not in the UK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it like I think it's very famous videos. now. It's very famous now because of again YouTube and all the stuff I've seen it. It's it, and it was like that. It was still like that then, right? But you know, we didn't have social media, right? So we did have videos, there were VHS videos, they would get copied and showed around and stuff like that. And I think some of my talks that I gave in Speaker's Corner, they're up on YouTube, they can be found, right? But then it was it was much more standing up and giving a, like a lecture or like shouting because you had to shout to get yourself heard above the crowd. But it's like, yes. this, like yeah, this, this is what got me quite well known, right? And it was from there that people heard about me and they got hold of my cassette tapes. And then then it was after that that people started inviting me everywhere. And Canada's like I went to Canada a lot, not the West Coast. I only actually relatively recently went to the West Coast, right? But yeah, Toronto, Ottawa, especially Ottawa a lot, right? That's what that's where I um, you know, I went there a lot and Toronto quite a lot. And US, I, but I never really went to the US, right? I went to the US once. I don't know why. I, I have no. You from the Americans? Huh? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I honestly, just, I have no idea why. I never really went to the US that often, right? I went once. I, I once got invited, and ironically enough, it was two weeks after nine eleven, right? And I actually went to Boston, and I didn't even know oh, wow. that. Like one of the, I didn't even know one of the planes had left from there. Right? I had no oh, idea. Oh man! Yeah, I didn't even know. Right? I all I knew this terrible thing. But you know, the funny thing was, things were still really quite cool. They weren't like, despite everything, it actually got worse and worse over time. Right? But you know, still then things were relatively, weirdly enough, relatively normal. And yeah, so I mean, I don't know. That's the only time I, that's the only, you know, I went to, I think I gave a lecture in MIT, which is quite, I'm sort of quite proud of giving a lecture in MIT. Oxford, Cambridge and MIT, isn't it? So um, yeah, so, but that's it. I never really went to the States, like having been almost everywhere. I've only been to the States once, which is sort of weird. I I still don't, I, I never, like, I have to admit, I never had a really burning desire. Like I had this weird English, posh English thing that we sort of had something a little bit against America, right? America, you know, US culture was always sort of unsophisticated. Yeah. Humor. It's humor is unsophisticated humor. Americans don't get sarcasm. They don't get British humor. They're basically unsophisticated, a sort of resentment that everything is gradually becoming Americanized. It's a sort of weird sort of 
dislike, you know, and like we'd even call we'd we we'd even call America the colonies. Yeah, like we didn't call anywhere else you the colonies. Yeah, yeah we call it. You know, we call it the colonies. You know, like it's a lot of arrogance. I have to say, like that's a whole subject. But I, I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, we, we, I never really went to the states, but I did. It's not. I did get invited a few times, but um, it often just wasn't I was, for you. Yeah, it wasn't written. That's it. At the end of the day, you're right. What's not in your qadr is not in your qadr. But I mean, apart from that, I, and I don't know. I don't know why. You know, my tapes didn't spread there. Maybe so much. I don't know. I have no no idea. I guess America did have. You know, that's one thing they did have some good speakers. And, and I think some... the American Dawah scene has always been a little unique in the sense that, mm. yeah, they've definitely had like their own history. Obviously, you've had amazing pioneers there, such as Imam Siraj Wahaj and others, you know, indigenous African-American Muslim leaders, yep. and others as well, again, in the OG Dawah yep. scene over yep. there. So, I mean, it's America. They got their own thing going anyway. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and that, you know, that there's no doubt about that. And I think the other thing is that the other reality is, is that, the thing about U.S. is that certainly then the American, you know, the Muslim community was very small and very spread out, right? So not you see the the great thing about U.K. and that's why U.K. has even until now been a real powerhouse. It really has, and it's generated, you know, what has come from the U.K. in terms of dawah, whether it's books, materials, publications, magazines, speakers, you know, uh, whatever. It's just a way disproportionate to its size and i guess that's maybe a lot to do because we're a small country right yeah, and yeah. it doesn't and take, I mean, so it's not ended up there from from former colonies as it were um, yeah so yeah i think uk versus america dynamics are quite interesting um but just shifting gears a little bit so in terms yeah. of this you know your particular interest in and your focus on giving yeah. dawah to non-muslims what would you say have been some of your most outstanding experiences in giving this dawah to non-Muslims in particular? I, I think that, I just think, I guess, really, first of all, the sort of dawah we used to do. Funnily enough, there's a place called Leicester Square, right? So it's not that far from Speaker's Corner, just about walking distance, like a long, long walk, but you can walk there. It's basically where all the movies and the cinemas and nightclubs and like right next to it is Soho, which is like the red light district, but it's and not anymore, but it's like all restaurants and stuff now. But, you know, it was like, like, like that sort of, I don't know, proper downtown London, right? Mm -hmm. Where all the, everything Lots happens. Character. And, yeah. And we would go down there on Friday night and Saturday night. That's the crazy nights, right? And we would set up a table and we would give dower. And just in terms of the sheer impact and the just quality of the interactions, that was, I have to say, those are probably the best days. Those are sort of, for me, the glory days, mm -hmm. right? When you say um, giving dawah, like how exactly did you do it? Because, you know, like nowadays, when you yep. think dawah table, it's like, I don't know, some lame MSA thing. But yeah, yeah. I know it was like a different phenomenon, like this setting up street dawah kind of thing. I know it's its own, like almost a mini culture in yep. and of itself so like, can you explain it to us because honestly like over here in canada we really don't see much of it yeah because i you see the thing is that's another thing right you have all these everything's a driving culture in canada right and people don't walk that much right so yeah, you just yeah. drive from one mall to the next mall right and the whole of your country is just designed around that and that uh, that's true for most of the u.s right now exceptions maybe new york or whatever but in uk it's not like that right our cities are much more sort of pedestrian friendly and people tend to get around on public transport in fact you just avoid taking your car really you literally avoid taking. it's a nightmare right it's so easier to get around by foot so there is this culture of just being able to you know you just get a little table uh, you put a cloth over it, you have some books, you know, you just have four or five guys, it, you know, everyone's carrying something. And, you know, we also sometimes used to bring a ladder and stand up on the ladder and just give speeches as well. Um, and that would sort of bring people. But most of the time, they were just these conversations, these interactions, people would just stop by and you would just start talking, start talking about Islam. Um, How would you and start one of these conversations? Just be like, hey... Heard about Islam lately? Yeah, or you have a leaflet, or you just stand there, and people would say, "Oh, what's this?" And we say, "We are Muslims," and the conversation would start. Ah, you know? interesting. And so many people became Muslim, 
right? The numbers like every week you'd have five, six, seven, ten people coming Muslim every week, you know, without fail, right? So it really was, yeah, it, it was really, really good. And and then of course there was Speaker's Corner. That's an amazing place. Again, some of the best interactions were not the ones when you're standing up speaking. It's what happens afterwards when people stop and talk. And often we often we just have these circles where okay. we would sit down and you get 50, 60, 70 people all sitting around, you know, in a like a circle. And you just so you're not shouting now. It's like a proper conversation. So th- those were great. And, and those are the things really I remember. But I mean, more recently, the more recently, I guess, you know, when you look at the, you look at the beginnings of our era, we had some very powerful things happening. The first was, I think it was the, I don't know what, I'm, I'm terrible with dates, but like whatever, eight years ago, nine, 10 years ago, there was an Olympic, you know, one of the Olympics. And so we decided to, I think actually the Olympics were in England at the time. Yeah. So that was in London. The Olympics were in London, right? So we decided to do this Olympic, like we have now the World Cup, the World Football World Cup. We're doing a Dower Day on the third on the third of December. So we're oh, just okay. encouraging everyone to go out. So this was the same thing. So for the Olympics, we did this Dower. We just printed these T-shirts with "Is Life Just a Game?" Yeah, which was just beautiful design. And uh, we just went out there with leaflets and trained probably a thousand people. You know, we did training, Dower training. And we just went out different groups all over London and just started giving dawah, right? We just go, said, go out there and talk to people about Islam. And, you know, we gave them some training about what to say, what not to say, and whatever. So what's an example and, of key points that you train people to talk about? Okay, so the key methodology, right, is what we call go rap. Yeah, it's called go rap. So go rap, the G stands for God. The O stands for oneness. The R stands for revelation the A for and, and the P for prophethood. Our method is don't answer people's controversial questions. When people say, oh, why? Because that's always the thing that comes up, right? People are like, oh, so like, what do you think about Iran? Or like, oh, y'all and your 72 virgins, or, you know, something something sketchy like that. And you know they're trying to like pick a fight. So exactly all of that type of stuff. So we just, you know, we literally teach people this line. You know what? That's a really good question. Thank you for asking that question. But you know, in order for me to be really able to answer that question properly, I need to explain to you the whole basis of what Islam is about. Have you got a few minutes? Okay, that's a really good hook. Right. And hopefully they say, if they say yes, they say fine. If they say no, we'll say, well, look, take a leaflet, have a nice day. Right. If they say yes, then we ask them, do you believe that there's a God? We start with that. How do you know there's a God? How do you know the universe has a creator, right? And how do we know there is only one God, not hundreds of gods, right? And then, well, if there is a God, because by that time, hopefully you've persuaded them that it makes sense that there's one creator who created the universe. That's what we teach, how to just give a convincing explanation of that. It makes sense that God would reveal guidance to us and send us prophets. like. How would we identify that guidance? How, do we, how would we know that someone is a prophet? And so then we sh- teach people how to explain that the Quran is from God, that Muhammad is the prophet, and that's it. That's how you give dawah. And if a person says, you know, we say, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. Well, okay. So Islam is you, you need to pray five times a day, fast Ramadan, you know, give zakah, make hajj, right? Speak the truth, be kind, you know, listen to your parents be just and you know give them a brief brief introduction to Islam and then invite them to take shahada so right there hey right there so you don't have to cover any of those silly questions you because listen once they've accepted that the Quran is from God that's it like logically right if God right, tells right. you whatever God right. tells you that's to do you're going yeah yeah so this is our method right very non-confrontational. You don't have to learn the Bible. You don't have to learn Bhagavad Gita. You don't have to learn any. You know, you don't have to spend years right. and years studying other scriptures. You don't need to need a. You don't need to need one verse of the Bible, right? To be honest, you don't even need to know the Quran that well. You just need to understand the basics, right? And we—that's what we do. We invite people to go back and say, "Look, let's let's base this on common sense and reason, right?" 
because that's what we start with. We say, look, what's the basis of our discussion? We think that the basis of the discussion should be that we use reason. So like there's this book I wrote called The Man in the Red Underpants, which is basically the man in the red underpants is go rap written down. Like it's like ah. so that's one of the books we give, you know, for, and why the man in the red underpants? The man in the red underpants because I tell you why, when I was teaching this Tao training course, one of my students, I would give the, my example used to be, look, if this guy comes knocking on your door, right? And he says, I've come to read the gas meter. And you look at him and he has a biker jacket, you know, like you used to like, sister, yeah? He used to have a biker jacket, yeah? And he had these, uh, what you call it, on his fists, yeah? He had love and hate tattooed on his oh, fists. Oh, wow. Right? <laughs> And, and he comes knocking on the door and says, I've come to read your electricity meter. Are you going to let him in? <laughs> right. Like, so people say, no. I say, well, why not? And they say, well, he doesn't look like someone. He, doesn't, he looks like a biker gang, bike gang member, not an electricity. I said, okay, so what is the process that you used in order to reach that decision? You use reason. You use logic. Okay, it happened very fast, but you still use reason and logic. That's what you use most of the time to make decisions in life, right? You, th you, you would think that your best decisions are the ones where you reasoned it through. Right. Okay. Right. But no, if you use that for something protecting your house, how about something more important like the meaning of life, understanding the universe? Shouldn't we also use our logic and reason? So most people say, yeah, that makes sense, right? So we're going to use common sense to try and understand. So we don't like even you're not referring to the Bible, to the Quran, you're just appealing to people's most basic, intuitive processes of understanding. And using that, it is very, very, very easy to show that there must be a God, that the universe must have a creator. Atheism makes no sense. Christianity makes no sense because well, it contradicts. Actually, given that you brought up atheism, do you think that maybe the success of this particular approach, and I'm just speculating here that the UK is still fun fairly fundamentally Christian in terms of just the general default norm, are people being Christian or having a, a foundation in Christian beliefs versus, for example, in both America and Canada, there's more and more hardcore atheism. And so even if it's, you say- It's like, really oh, the, yeah, Zainab, it's actually the opposite, right? Really? So like, yeah. Canada and, well, especially the US is more Christian, right? Like okay. England is the most irreligious country in the planet. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Like, I think it's like the most, maybe except maybe, I don't know, one of the Scandinavian countries now, right? So they're not like, they're not religious here at all, right? But it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter whether you're Hindu, Christian, like the thing is, Gorat works with everybody, right? When I say it works, right? I mean, you know, like, again, even when you say militant, atheist, and this and that, and like, okay, I don't know, like, maybe in universities, you're going to meet militant atheists, but you know, your average Joe on the street is not going to be a, they may, even if they say I'm an atheist, they probably don't even know what it means, right? Like, I've seen conversations of a person, you know, what are you? I'm an atheist. Like, and literally two minutes into the conversation, that same person is saying, yeah, I believe there must be something that made everything. Like, wait, uh, wait yeah, a minute. Yeah. So they don't even know what it means. It's just like the, it's trendy to be an atheist. So like most of the time you're just dealing, and this is the thing, right? Go rap works really well for the 90% of the people you're dealing with. Yes, there is a 10%. You, you are going to meet 10% of people who, you know, you're going to have to understand way deeper, right? And yeah, but I, I teach everyone, don't bother with those people. Don't bother having conversations with them. Most of the time, they're argumentative anyway. And a lot of the time, sister, they're not even, they're not atheists because they really believe it, right? Or they've even really thought about it, or they're intellectually honest. Believe me, like I would say that. Atheism. No, most of these atheists, they are atheists for emotional reasons. Uh. They have emotional issues, right? you'll find that they have issues because someone who is religious did this or something happened. You know, and I'm not saying, you know, maybe it's a genuine excuse, right? Their grandmother died horribly and they just thought, how could there be a God? How could God let this happen? There can't yeah. be a God. One right? of those fundamental questions of just like the born of human pain, really. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you find when you really dig, when you really dig down deep, right, this is what you find, right? 
I think a lot of it comes, I actually honestly think a lot of it comes down to the fact that people got disappointed when they found that Father Christmas wasn't real. Literally. And I know it sounds funny, but I literally think that is a deep psychological scar in so many people, right? The fact that they were a kid and then they were taught to believe this big guy is going to, you know, come and give you presents. And then, you know, one day everyone's laughing at them because they actually believed it, right? Oh, wow. That way, it does sound deeply troubling. It is. And so, you know, like what people do is, you know, the classic thing, they throw the baby out of the bathwater, right? I'm not going to believe any of these superstitions, right? And they just package God and all religion along with that, right? And in a way, in a sense, who's right. to blame them, yeah. right? You know, I mean, probably, possibly the biggest driver towards atheism is Christianity because itself, it just, you know, it's just incomprehensible that when it comes to the Trinity and, you know, God coming down in the form of a man and killing himself or killing himself, his son or whatever, you know, however you paint it, right, to forgive sins. And like, you know, so a rational person thinking about this and listening to it is going to be like, how does that make any sense? Right, you right. Know? Good point. Well, kind of following up from that then, what do you wish more Muslims knew or understood when it comes to giving da'wah to non-Muslims? Because I feel like for a lot of us, like, I'll just use the phrase loosely, like the born Muslims or those who are raised Muslim. You know, we've kind of got these sometimes funny ideas of giving da'wah to non-Muslims and that some people will fixate on the more controversial things, hijab, polygamy, terrorism, whatever, right? Um, and for other people, it's about like the feel-good factor or the, oh, wow, let's like bring this person to the message and have like their little convert celebration thing or whatever. And and then there's nothing too much else going on on or you know certain things that we as again culturally raised muslim things that we might think are priorities that you as somebody who converted and you've had all this experience in, in da'wah with muslims with non-muslims where you're just like hold on a second that's, that's really not important to talk about right now yeah i mean i think you you know to be honest you pretty much <laughs> i mean that sort of sums it up I, i'm going to be brutal and like most of the stuff that people call da'wah it's not really Tao. You know, like one of my biggest things that annoys me is when people say the best Tao is good manners. <laughs> and I would say that's absolute nonsense. It's right, absolute, it's nonsense. Yeah. And all this stuff about, oh, people became Muslim because of good man. No, right? Just nonsense. Let me tell you something. Anyone listening, if you are a I'm just going to talk, I'm going to have a sort of binary sort of, it's going to sound racist, yeah, but I will say <laughs> it anyway, I'll say. Let's right? Hear it. I will, yeah, no, seriously. If you are a not white person talking to a white person, and I, in America or in England or in Europe, and you have good manners, no one is going to look at you and say, oh, look at that person. Their manners are so wonderful, it must be their religion. They're not going to think that. They're going to think, oh, look at that brown black, yellow, whatever person, right, who came to our civilized part of the world from their jungle, yeah, and they learned some good manners from us. They're not going to attribute your good manners to your religion. They're going to think that whatever good manners you have, you learnt it from us. That is right? such a good point. And yeah, 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 but you're going to delude yourself thinking that, point. you know, yeah, uh, that's the truth. And I'm telling you, that's the truth, right? I would say unless there's something really, unless you do something really extraordinary, like really extraordinary, there may be some things that they will just stop and think, wait a minute, that that's, that's, you know, like it, but it would have to be extraordinary, right? So like, if, it'll have to be really extraordinary, something that would just make them just like it, they would have to, but you know, most of what we call good manners wouldn't fall into that, right? And unfortunately, I hate to say it, in fact, Muslims don't even, a lot of them match the manners of the kuffar. In I some was going to say, ironically. Right. Yeah, so like all this stuff about good manners and stuff, absolute nonsense. Yeah? It might have worked. It might have worked when Muslims, right, went to Southeast Asia, right, where literally they were going to the jungle, right, and people just had the law of the jungle, right, and then they saw people you know, having laws and being decent and being polite and this and that, right? They may have been impressed with that, right? But not when you're going to come from the jungle to the civilized West, right? 
I, I, I'm sorry to say it because that's no, what's I happening. Get you. I get you. The people are running from these countries to come and live in the West, right? They'll yeah. sell their grandmas to come and live in the West, right? Yeah. So, like, you gotta you gotta put it in the right perspective. Start, and unfortunately, imams and scholars use this line out this nonsense. I'll scholars, wait. right? Spout this nonsense and propagate this this absolute balderdash to use a sort of proper thing English thing. <laughs> You know, it, it really riles me up. And and Allah said, Who is better in speech than the one who calls to Allah? Mm. You see? So dawah, even in the time of the Prophet, was a verbal invitation. Yes, of course, the manners of the Prophet was the best. His character, was the best. That's what made him so believable. Of course it did. But it wasn't on its own enough. You have to invite. Yeah. You have to explain. This is what you have to do, right? You have to call to the way of your Lord. Yeah, yeah with these things. So it's dawah is calling, sister. It is calling, brothers and sisters. So and you and, and dawah is an art, it is it is a skill. And everyone in the West has to do it. You have to learn how to, and you are inviting to Allah. Yes, you are inviting to Allah. You are not inviting to your culture. Yeah, you're not inviting to a madhab. You're not inviting to an imam or a sheikh, right? You're not certainly not inviting people to the Palestinian cause. Sorry to say. Do you think inviting people to support the cause of the Palestinian cause is doubt? No, right? It's not to invite people to taste your various dishes and you know be enamored with your food. It is to invite people to la ilaha illallah. This that's is the dawah. This is the dawah, right? And that's the priority, right? The priority dawah has priorities. It has things that are more important. What does it matter if you convince all the women in America to wear hijab and they are still making shirk? You will not have saved anybody from Jahannam. Yes. Yep. Right? So the real talk that we are here for. And I'm so glad you brought up those points about the culture and the food and whatever, because a lot of quote-unquote dawah events tend to revolve around this kind of fluffiness. And it never yep. really gets fluffiness. to the point of like, yeah. hey, what's Islam actually yeah. about? And I mean, I totally attest to the fact that this is or has become the whole, yeah, fluffy dawah is what I call it, right? Like, everything's yeah. all about, like, oh, I mean, look at us, we're so nice, yeah. we're so cultured, we have such a great history, blah, blah, blah. But let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and let's talk about how we're so much like you, but let's not talk about the most significant difference between mm -hmm. us. And that is definitely something that we lack, uh, whether it's on, like, university campuses, MSAs, you know, your interfaith approaches, yeah. like, oh, let's hold hands and talk about how wonderful we all are. Um, Kumbaya. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. really never any focus on, like, here's what Islam's really about. We actually had, um, so Canada, October is Islamic History Month. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of pretty cool events and uh, focusing on Islamic history, this and that, and the history of Islam in Canada, which is great. But something that was missing from a lot of it was, what is Islam actually? Like, what are we talking yep. about here? We're not yep. just like an ethnic group or a cultural group. Yep. Um, so one thing that we made sure to include, at least in our presentation, alhamdulillah, our event, was before anything else, we started off talking about like, what is Islam? What are we actually speaking? Mm. And we did an old school dawah booth with like, you know, the masahif and those, again, like the OG books and pamphlets. I was like, you know what? We got them in storage. Let's use them because they have a purpose. Let's like make there be a genuine mm. point to this besides the fluffiness and let's all get along. I think, look, I want to, I want to, I've got to say something important, right? You see, what, like, what I've done is I, I, I sort of categorize Dawa into th three levels. We, what we call is level one, level two, and level three. We consider IERA, uh, my organization, not my organization, Staghfirullah, but, you know, the organization that I helped start, right? Doesn't, it's not mine in any way. I don't know. What is that? But, you know, the organization that Allah has blessed me to sort of be a part of, we consider ourselves a, a level one dawah organization. So what do I mean level one? Like level one is when you are inviting people to become Muslim. 
That's what you do. You invite people to believe in the oneness of Allah, the prophethood of Muhammad, you know, the divinity of the Quran, and to accept Islam and take shahada and be Muslim and practice Islam, mm -hmm. right? That's what we call level one dawah. Level two dawah, right? Is so most people are engaged in level two and level, we still think of it, it's still dawah, right? Because so level two is what you're trying to do is make people more friendly towards Islam and Muslims, right? And that's most of what you're talking about, fluffy dawah. It's not really dawah, okay? It's important work because it's something that allows the survivability and the continuity of the Muslim community in the West, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And it needs to be done. It absolutely needs to be done. No one should look down upon it as useless work, right? So all of these things are very good. Everyone should do them. But you need to, everyone needs to be honest. About, and it, it helps, by the way, when you're honest, right? right? And you know what you're trying to do, right? When you're just trying to say, look, if you're just trying to think people, you know what? These Muslims are nice. I like these people. You know, we can be friends with these people. They're good neighbors. They're nice people, right? I mean, th there's nothing there that's going to make them want to become Muslim, you know, unless they really like the food or, you know, this guy likes a pretty Muslim girl or vice versa, right? Then maybe someone's going to become Muslim. But, you know, apart from that, th there's no dawah in the sense you're actually inviting people to Islam, but at least you are building that good, friendly relationships between people, right? And that's very important because as a, as a community trying to live, in the West, you need to do that, right? And the third level, level three, which is like the the lowest level, right? Is just you're just trying to hope that people won't hate you so much. Yeah. Like they're just gonna hate you a little bit less, right? Like, you know, they hate you, but hopefully they'll hate you less, right? Yeah, they won't you know? like outright murder you in your bed. Yeah. So they're gonna move from like those, you know, literally I want to kill those people to, yeah, okay, they're just whatever, but they're, they're, I can tolerate them, right? Even that's important. I mean, no one wants to be murdered in their bed, right? That stuff is really, really important as well, right? But again, like, let's not confuse it. Let's not call it dawah, right? You know, invite, you know, dawah, it means something to call, to invite people to Islam, to accept Islam. I so do a lot of this. purposeful element there. So I, th I think this is what we call the three levels of dawah, right? Most people are engaged in level, you know, level three and level two, right? Yeah. But it's not good enough. Personally, I believe that we are the ummah of level one dawah, right? That's, what, that's our responsibility. And if we're not fulfilling that responsibility, if you're not doing it yourself personally, right, you should certainly be forming or supporting an organization financially and in, any, in every other way that you can that is fulfilling that responsibility, right? That's the minimum you have to do as a Muslim living in the West. Right. And I believe that if you're not, you're sinful, you're criminal, really. And you're actually under the threat of Allah's destruction. You know, it's very clear that Allah has really threatened us, right? That with destruction, if we don't, if, and humiliation, if we don't fulfill that task, right? Mm -hmm. That, that's the, it is actually the defining characteristic of the Ummah, of Muhammad, that we enjoy what is right and we forbid what is wrong and we believe in Allah. You know, that's what makes words, us, but yeah, you know, we need to hear that because we really yeah. don't hear that very much, to be honest, these yeah. days. So, you know, like, so this is very important. Dower is really key. It's really important. And, and on a deeper level, on a psychological level, and I'm talking on the, the level of, you know, even individually, but also collectives, how we are collectively. What does it say about us? What does it say about you as a person? What does it say about us as a community if we are not inviting people to believe in what we believe, right? It, it says to me that either you don't really love it, because surely if you love something, yeah, you want to share it, you want to share it, right? I mean, anybody who loves something, they want to share it. You love some music, you want everyone to listen to that music, right? You love a particular sports team. You're trying to convince everyone that your sports team is best, right? I mean, like whatever it is, you you when you love something, you know you can't stop talking about it, and you can't stop sharing it. It this is inevitable. So if you're not doing that, what does that say about you? For what sure. does that really say about you? It says to me you don't really love Allah. You don't really love His Deen. 
you don't really love the Prophet This is the Prophet of Allah Muhammad This is the this is the person. We all say, oh, do you love the Prophet more than your mother and your, you know, your sister and your mum and your dad and you know even yourself? Really? Like anyone can say that. But you know, the Prophet went to Taif and he was pelted with stones. According to some books of Sirah, he spent 10 days, the Prophet Sassim, 10 days in Taif knocking on every single door, every single door inviting people to Islam, right? No one accepted Islam. He got stoned. He was bleeding. His sandals were sticking to his feet. This is the messenger of Allah. This is what he did for Dao. And you say you love him more than yourself? Right? Yeah, Why wouldn't you do what he did? Word, really. And let me tell you something. If you do that in Canada, right, and you knock on people's doors and invite them to Islam, is someone going to stone you? Like, even if they do, you could just call the cops. I was going to say, the worst you'd get is a very sour look. But you know, the thing is, the thing is, Zainab, most people would be so happy. Oh, I, this is literally, you know what we, when, when IRA used to operate, you know, in, in USA, uh, it was sort of, Unfortunately, I don't know. We, we need to get things going there. But the brothers went down there and the sisters, they went down, they went on the streets. I don't know where, where it, I can't remember where it was. I think it was in Texas somewhere or whatever. The people were saying to them, where have you Muslims been? Where wow. have you been? At last you're out here telling us about you. Where have you been hiding? Why haven't you? This is what people were saying. Interesting. Right? Yes. Because like, what, you think about it. What if you, why are you hiding? What have you got to hide? Because you're guilty, right? You're hiding because you're guilty. This is yeah. the psychology. You know, so th th this is one thing. But the other thing is, right? The other thing is this, right? Is that this is a, you know, this is a huge thing for me, right? You know, I don't want to mention name. I'm not doing this to criticize anybody, but illustrates the point perfectly for me. I was watching, listening to this interview between Sheikh Yasser Qadi and uh, Tariq Swaydan, right? Uh -huh. Very interesting. And at the end of it, I think they're asking each other, what are the five top things or the whatever, you know, that the Ummah needs to do to change, right? And, you know, it was very interesting. But as usual, right, all we hear from the Ummah is our problems. Us, us, us. We need to do this for ourselves. We need to do that. Whether it's we're talking about our Aqidah issues, our Fiqh issues, our educational issues, our this issues, our that issues. And for me, that's actually really, that's the problem. The big problem is... We're being selfish? Yeah, we're selfish. We're just wrapped up in our own self. We just, you know, we want to be glorious and great again, right? But we forget that our glory and our greatness did not come from being selfish, did not come from being wrapped up in our own problems, right? When we were great and glorious, that's when we were more concerned about spreading the message of Islam to the rest of the world than we were about building our own power and dominion and strength. Okay, so having said all of that, final question. This, yeah. The focus on converting people, awesome, I totally get it, and you've definitely made a very convincing argument for the importance of Dawah to non-Muslims, mashallah. But what do you think yeah. about the whole, you know, sometimes the movements to be like, oh, so many people converted, mashallah, you know, hundreds of people converted now in Qatar because at the World Cup, um, because mm. they saw Muslims being nice or whatever, right? But then the lack of corresponding effort towards convert support. What are your thoughts on that? That's another problem. It is a big challenge. And we've taken that really seriously in our organization, IRA. From the day we started our organization, we said there is no point. There is no point us doing all this work, calling people to Islam, if we don't look after those people who are new Muslim. It doesn't make any sense. What's the point? Yeah. I mean, like, like, I'll, I'll be fine. We're in it. We're in it for the reward, right? That's what we, we're in it for the ajr. What's the point if someone takes shahada and they don't pray and they don't fast? And like, mm -hmm. what's the yeah, reward? Exactly. So we we've taken this really really seriously. I mean, to the extent that look, the work we do in Africa, right? Eighty percent of our time and energy is spent on educating the new Muslim. That's amazing. That's and amazing. I, I literally, you know, we're we're That's talking amazing. about. Yeah, we're talking about our shahadas are probably going to be hitting quarter of a million next year, right? Maybe half a million, right? Worldwide, right? Probably more than 50, 60% of those are in Africa, right? We could double that, quadruple that easily, right? If we didn't focus on, but, but we can't. 
And the reason is we can't is because our du'at are all tied up most of the 80% of the time in educating the new Muslims. We don't let them move on to give da'wah to new people. See, that's until, a good point. That's a yeah. powerful, powerful point because that's something like, again, with my own experiences and speaking to others, including other converts, like one of the biggest ways the ummah fails is like we get all happy mm. when we see the shahada numbers, yeah. right? Yeah. Somebody comes to the masjid and we throw a little party and we're like, oh yeah, cool, let's like film this YouTube video, whatever. And then we ghost them and we are not there for mm. them and we're not there to teach them in a sensitive way. And I mean, again, one of the biggest issues we have is like everybody gets super excited over, you know, a female convert, for example, and trying to marry her off within five minutes. But if so she doesn't, funny. or even yeah. if she does, khalas, and we like pass them off and we're like, okay, we're done with you now. Yep. We see you, we see you. If we don't, we don't, but we don't care either way. And that's honestly very concerning to me. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And pretty yeah. much anybody in Dawa, like actually involved in community work in Dawa, whatever, because then we we throw out all these statistics, like Islam is the fastest growing religion. We have all these mm. convert acceptance rates. Cool, but it's are also we- the fastest apostatizing religion. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. The whole we have a rate of people incoming, but what's our rate of people outgoing? And why yeah. is that happening? And what are we doing about it? Well, I mean, look, I, I've, it always, to be honest, it's always confused me. I didn't really understand it. Um, and unfortunately, it is tro- what we, we call them trophy shahadas, right? Exactly. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's a byproduct of the social media age where you just, you know, you give shahada, take a selfie, take a video, and you think you've done your job, right? And uh, even more unfortunately, and we've had, you know, there's a very interesting podcast we did in iERA with a brother who used to work with us, but he basically, at the end of the day, realized it was just a big ego trip, right? It was not really about dawah. I mean, he can, he sort of, on a sense, confessed it, right? This is all like self-promotion, right? He was just using it as a platform to big himself up. Now, unfortunately, he sort of almost went in the opposite direction. Instead of checking his intentions and keep on doing what he should have been doing, right? Which is check your intentions and keep doing the good work, right? Which is the advice he would have got you know, if he'd, if he'd talked to some senior people, yeah. you know, he decided to sort of, I don't know, sort of sort of retreat from everything. Yeah. Did any mom was for a bit? Yeah, that sort of thing. But, you know, everyone knows what they need, I guess. Whatever works for him is good, right? But um, the, the point being is that there's definitely this factor, right? Like back in the days when I'm talking about Speaker's Corner, when someone took Shahada in Speaker's Corner or Leicester Square, like one of us, at least one of us, if not all of us, would stop what we were doing. And we would take that person to the nearest masjid and they would learn to make wudu right there after their shahada. And we would pray with them their first salah, right? And, you know, then we would be in touch with them. And, you know, that, that just without, without thinking, like, of course you have to do that. You know, when someone takes shahada, it's like a newborn baby. Like, like who would give birth to a child and just say, well, bye, you know, you can look after yourself now. Great point. So yeah, the new Muslims need looking after and there need to be programs and things in place in order to make sure that that happens, you know, because that is an intrinsic part of the Tao. And if that's not being done, then that's a major failing, major failing as well. Well, just before we wrap up, one final, final question. (laughs) I promise it's the last one. But on that note about convert support, like what are books or resources that you personally recommend for new Muslims? Okay. Well, I don't, I mean, you know, we have an online, you know, we, we basically what we do is in our era, we train people. We have a new Muslim training course. So it's actually two things we have, like a, a course that a new Muslim can go and do themselves, right? But we also train people on how to teach new Muslims about, you know, their religion, right? So like the, I, I would really encourage people to use that re, those resources. It's very difficult to... You know, personally, I, I don't know. I, I would encourage people to read the Quran, to read the, to, to become familiar. I mean, the first thing I say to every new Muslim is you got to learn how to pray. That's the right. first thing, the most important thing. It doesn't really matter what particular book or what, you know, it's, you know, the, the differences are really, you know, there's nothing really that is going to change the validity of your prayer, right? Um, so it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you are praying five times a day, right? Yeah. And you know you're following, uh, you know, one of the schools of thought in in that respect, mm-hmm. uh, or you know whatever. So I mean, 
I, I don't think that that really matters so much, right? Not getting bogged down in the details and more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, probably, just get just start your bases, playing. Learn your stuff. So, I mean, but apart from that, I would just, you know, recommend people to really familiarize with themselves with the Quran, read it over and over and over. I mean, a lot to really, really be attached to the Quran. And probably I would say to read Riyadh the Salihin as well, which is a really beautiful, yes. simple, easily accessible uh, book of hadith of narrations of the Prophet. Like all of that stuff. You it's can't all go wrong that- with the classics. You can't like it's all stuff you can act on. Like it's not like it's not like controversial ficky stuff and you know like no, it's like really good stuff. You know, keeping your promises and being good to your neighbors and you know and, and, and you know not committing this sin and you know the virtues of praying and the virtues of reading Quran and you know like this really, really you know your good fundamental quality. everyday necessities. Absolutely. So I, I would really, again, that's it. Read Riyadh Salihin over and over, right? Like be familiar with it. Or even even before that, Anawi's 40 Hadith, right? Yeah. That's an even smaller book. I mean, there are other things I could go into detail. I think there are certain books I really think are great, like Dr. Bilal Phillips' the Fundamentals of Islamic Monotheism, I think is a brilliant book. He, he breaks down the key concepts of monotheism in really, really digestible, easy to understand for a Western audience. I think that's a great book. And, and a seerah, a good life history of the prophet. Yes. And those wonderful books on the lives of the companions. Really, really great because people love stories. They love stories. And what a great story it is, the, you know, the life of the prophet. What a brilliant story. And those beautiful stories about the lives of the companions. I, they used to be in three volumes. I think it's in two volumes now. So that's the sort of thing, you know. I think that's a really good start. If you if you read that, you'll you know you'll get a good sort of foundation in terms of books and resources. That's what I would recommend, inshallah. Well, khair for your time. For everyone, by the way, not just for numerous, even Muslims could do. Yeah, well. definitely. You know, it's funny. I was actually just thinking about how, like, again, back in the day, reading Riyadh al-Salihin was just a given. Everybody had a yeah. copy, or I could access yeah. one easily, and uh, you know, it was just. It was staple in people's households, and now people—it's yeah. like they don't even know it exists. No, I, Subhanallah. Uh, anyways, we all got work to do, so uh, yeah. you know, may Allah help us all increase I mean, us, I mean, our knowledge and our faith more than anything, and make yeah. us amongst those who are able to to give that dawah and live that dawah. I think that's that's mm-hmm. a really important key bit yeah. here. So, Jazakallah khair for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. And, uh, you know, it feels like a bit of a throwback for me because, like I said, I grew up listening uh, to some of your talks and stuff. And I used to follow your blog back in the day when Muslim blogs. And I used to, I used to follow your blog. So, um, <laughs> Who yeah, thought I remember it, what, what, Mini, what was it? Mini Mouse. Musings of a Muslim Mouse. That was a very long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Musings of a Muslim Mouse. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it. All right, take care. And to our listeners, yeah, thank yeah. you for joining us. And please share your appreciation for Sheikh Abdurrahim Green's uh, work and his insights in today's podcast and leave any comments and questions below. Jazakumullah khair. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hey, everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.